hi everyone welcome back to x university business week i'm your host max shannon also president and co-founder of x university business week i'm delighted today to have alex wood the cio kerno asset management a private boutique investment manager and has been investing since the age of 15. previously alex has been a fund manager at downing llp vice president at deutsche bank and management consultant at kpmg Alex is a qualified chartered accountant and holds the investment management certificate and a BA in accounting and economics. Alex is also an investment committee manager at private family office. Alex, thank you for joining me today. Um, thank can you. I start off by asking you what Kernel is, why you set it up, uh, where its name came from, but also its performance to date. Okay, a couple of questions. So, um... Kerno, to start with Kerno, Kerno means Cornwall. It's where I live. It's my favorite place and I'm very passionate about investing. But to most people, finance is a bit dull. So I tried to um, bridge the gap for the passion I have for Cornwall. And hopefully that resonates with people into finance and what it means to me and what the fund means to me and, and sort of bridge that gap. Um, we run a UK equity uh, hedge fund. Hedge funds traditionally are secretive. We're a little bit different. We're, we're quite transparent. We sort of push the ESG envelope to another level compared to our, our competitors. Um, the other part was on per, performance. I mean, we've, we've been doing this a long time and we're very lucky with performance. Again. And um, Kerno's done what it's done in the short time that's been around. I think the benchmark's at, at zero, almost 40%. But past performance is no guide to the future, et cetera, et cetera, and modeling investment advice. But we really focus on, um, you remember one thing being a contrarian? And it's about being contrarian and um, following the investment process and being you know, better than anyone else in the specific thing you focus on. Um, and I think um, hopefully we're, we're building out a nice uh, track record in, in that regard. But why do you think boutiques like yourself tend to outperform large money managers? So there's two, well, there's a number of things, but fundamentally the maths, the first one, um, if, uh, so this, I'm exaggerating the numbers, but 80% of all money is managed by, you know, 10% of fund managers. And most of those are active and literally they are the index. And by definition, they charge too much money. So they underperform the index. Now to have an average, you have to have something that takes the other side. That means that you outperform. So boutiques outperform on average. Now the dispersion of returns, which you guys will get is... The, the, the big guys basically will be index huggers minus one or 2%, always. Um, the, the boutique managers will be plus or minus 20, maybe plus 30, minus 15, always. So the, you know, the dispersion, the average will come out as plus four or five over the index. Um, but, but I've never achieved five, I'll put it that way, percent in, in a year. So my average is five uh, for the industry. Well, my average is 16, but the average for the industry is plus five, but no one, no one achieves that. So it's just a more uncomfortable uh, situation for investors. So mathematically, boutiques don't take on too much money. The, one of the most important things for your listeners is uh, look, there's, in finance, there's investing, there's something called diseconomies of scale. It's the opposite of everything you're taught. You want less, less is more, like car racing, uh, great art, less is more. You just want quality, not quantity and, and rubbish. If you, I'd rather have a, a billion dollars making 20% per annum than 10 billion making 1% per annum. Um, and it, it's, it's that simple on the math side. 
The second element that's really critical to BTEKS, which is academically proven in uh, people like Nort Hill and um, Alderwood, Alderwood, sorry, publish on, is um, alignment of interests. And indeed, in the FT today, you saw um, um, one of the smart journalists pointing out that a lot of fund managers don't even invest in their fund. Because if I'm earning 400 grand or 1.2 million a year and I'm work, I won't use a, a large scale name, and I, my job is to do 2% to the index, it's quite an, you know, I interview some, you know, I interview some companies that write lots of reports. Why do I want to put money in the, in, in the index? I'll probably buy the stocks myself or I'll put money in funds that I believe in elsewhere. And they do. Um, so the alignment of interest is the second thing that's crucial. Smaller fund managers tend to put their money or a large proportion of their, or in my case, pretty much everything I have into their funds. And they are damn certain that they have an edge over the market and that they're going to make make money. I mean, sometimes they're wrong, but that conviction and that stubbornness is going to give you more outperformance relative to the guy who's just turning up doing nine to five, who has no, no interest in the performance whatsoever, apart from index hugging and keeping his job. And that alignment is a very powerful motive. Um, and you'll see, and you can find seeing that. I mean, we've got football going on at the moment. Um, there's... You know, it's a native football manager tends to outperform non-native football managers when they're managing football teams. And I, I put, I'm guessing, I don't know if it's that well, but that could be down to the passion side of it. Um, how do you look for an inefficiency premium? It's a great question. There are obviously by default price discovery a million and more price discovery options. And the more participants you have, the more intricate the way you are to find an inefficiency. Um, and our market's quite crowded today. So you basically have to find a inefficiency that you can only trade your beliefs. Just find an inefficiency that you can quantify or you believe in. Find a philosophy that can take the other side. Find an investment process that's robust and repeatable and collect that premium. And then you've got to be emotionally resilient to be able to trade that. Uh, and you've got to find the money to do it as well. Um, anybody can find a, a, um, an inefficiency anywhere and it's about whether or not they they can then capture it um and there's millions of them and they're all over the place and they all make some of them make sense so you buy a stock before the um you know it goes in the index when it goes in the index loads of funds are going to buy it because if they have to it's probably going to go up but then this is the degrees of rationality because what i just told you is pretty obvious so the stock will move before it goes into the index but how early before early does it move before people think that it's going to go into the index? So you don't buy the most likely one to go in the index. You buy two, three, and four most likely to get as a, as a spread. And you can make it as complicated as you want. And then maybe you want to just buy options on when it's moving. Uh, dividend scalping. Company goes going to pay a 5% dividend on tomorrow. The share price should fall 5% tomorrow. Um, if I bought on Monday and um, the share price has gone up a lot, I say 3% up until now, ignoring, ignoring the market, a couple of people have dividend scalped it. So I'm going to sell today because I'm not, it's not going to fall by that. It's going to fall by the right amount. If the price has stayed stable this week, when the stock goes ex div tomorrow, because most people don't know what I'm talking about, the price might only fall to 4%. And I hold my stock, I'll sell tomorrow, collect the dividend, and I make a 1% in a day. Um, and so that's a, that's a trade where you're collecting a, a premium. And what you're doing is you're providing price discovery to the market because by my action, I'm pushing that, that price down to where, where it should be in my, in my selling. Um, so you are the fundamental trader. 
if you make a mistake, you lose money. It's very simple. <laughs> um, and, and there's ways of doing it as well. Sometimes, you know, collecting uh, pennies in front of a steamroller. So it could be a trade where you're collecting money all the time, but you're imagining this risk. Or it could be a trade where you're wrong nine times, like venture capital almost. And it's the, it's the tenth time where you make an asymmetric gain that pays for the, all the losses beforehand, but it also you can buy a yacht with as well because you make loads of money. So there's different strategies, different timeframes. And the most important thing is to link the inefficiency that you view to your own beliefs, but also that it suits your personality and you can trade it in your top train line. And you don't need third-party verification. And in fact, if most people disagree with you or no one else sees what you see, it's more likely to be more profitable. Um, when an efficiency becomes well-known and lots of people trade it, it stops working, which is what you've seen with Statarb in, in, in you know, the 90s, um, M&A, um, ARB recently, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then you have things that fall out of fashion, like value investing at the moment is very, very much out of fashion. So no one's doing it. It's now starting to work again because not enough people are doing it. Um, I've talked a bit much, but there's a million reasons and um, ultimately it just comes down to valuation and willingness of the market to efficiently price things. Investment management is, you know, you take money from those who have money, give it to those who have an efficient use for it. Um, there has to be a price for that capital allocation. And that's kind of my job. Um, and if I do it well, we, we wealth increases and everyone gets their infinite, um, infinite wants mildly satisfied. If I do it wrongly, um, everybody complains and it, and there's and there's riots yeah can you explain why you think historical beta is wrong so beta is historically calculated how much does the stock moves by relative to the market um and typically it's 12 months looking back so if a stock has moved at 70 percent relative to the market it's low beta if it's moved at 1.5 it's classed as high beta um that's entirely on the past of the stock movement relative to the st and it's based on what the market maker is doing or the traders are doing relative to no news flow in that stock. Um, and um, it's not necessarily based on the events of the future and you don't know what the stock market of the future is going to be like. So if a stock for the last year has had no fundamental news, it's a low beta stock because there's nothing for traders to do and it's a bit boring. If it has loads of news coming up, I don't know if it's gonna go up or down, but if it has loads of news coming up, it's gonna be a high beta stock. But if you type it into your risk model, which is backwards looking, it's gonna be, say, it's low, you know. So, and they're really interesting to us because we know something's about to become, it's it's the wrong way around, so the beta's wrong, and that's a really good screen for us. Um, so what was the second part of the question? So then if you link that into a catalyst, so okay, I know there's news coming up, I'll take a view if I think it's good or bad and what that means for the price. If there's enough, if there's four bits of news and I think three of them are positive, then I've got enough of a basis to think it's going to go up or if it's negative, I'll go down. Then I can take possibly, can I, can I trade that? And that becomes really interesting. Um, uh, also, you can have shock events on a macro level. So pharmaceuticals traditionally are very defensive, boring stocks. Coronavirus, when it went from that, excuse my language, the oh shit moment where we went from February being like, oh, SARS, isn't that funny? That's not going to happen. Coronavirus is a bit of a nothing. We were all worried mainly about um, palm oil or something or the interest rates. All of a sudden, coronavirus was going to kill everybody around us and it was un uncurable. That made pharmaceutical stocks overnight high beta stocks because everybody was trading and everybody was buying and everybody was selling them or who was going to win, who was going to lose. They became the most important 
things in the world. If you, if you type it into a computer, it would still say low beta. So um, same as with the options pricing formula and things and volume when it explodes. Uh, and then it goes the other way as well. Some of the volume is then too high. Um, so what we look at was we try and spot things where the historic numbers are going to be wrong, where there's an upcoming event or cat. It can be as simple as a dividend coming up. It doesn't have to be, you know, company X is looking at company buying Y. But um, and there's a million of them. We miss them. and We just try and spot the easy, easy ones. To give you a live example, because that's always really helpful. Uh, Sherborn Investors Trust C, which is a, a very dull name. They were the activist investor that had 5% of Barclays Bank who said, you should split your bank because you'll double your share price. Barclays Bank said, no, we like being rubbish and keeping our jobs, you won't do that. Um, so after two years, they gave up. There was 79p of cash in, in um, the trust. The share price is 59p. Um, the stock used to be a high beta and move around more than Barclays because it was discount on discount to trade at 20% discount. As soon as they announced they're not longer, longer invested in Barclays, the share price, if you look at it, it's just gone sideways and its beta's now dropped to like 10 because there's no one trading it because the traders have nothing to do. But who's buying a cash shell company? There's nothing to do with that apart from me because it's, it's got more cash in it than it as a company. But there's nothing, there's no trade going on. So it's just going sideways. Um, the reason why not many people are buying it for the trade reason, uh, like myself, is that company's not going to return the cash to the billionaire owner. What they're going to do is go and buy another company and try and do a Barclays but on a smaller scale. So they might buy uh, Saatchi and Saatchi, the famous um, marketing brand, and say, look, you should probably sell yourself to G4 Capital for double your price because you've got a better brand than you do have a number of people punching out uh, advertising. With your brand, you could double the number of staff and advertising campaigns, and actually you could keep your pricing power. I just made that all up. That is not true. Um, they'll announce that soon, and hopefully we'll collect that discount on that on that share price. Um, and it will go back to being a high beta stock. Back to your kind of own uh, risk management, what's your risk appetite for uh, both bull and bear markets? And, and, and at what point do you cut your losses? Our process is very, so briefly, we uh, our process is three steps. We value an equity, pay less for it, and then we trade the catalyst. We do all our own research. We try and find an overreaction, underreaction, and, and we trade the other side of the contrarian nature of whatever the stock is. I don't really, it's very interesting. I don't care about macroeconomics. I don't really care about sector themes because that's not how I get paid. I get paid for either discovering something in accounts that are wrong or discovering something before someone else or trading the emotion of people overreacting. So I'm looking for specific things. So the way our book works is if I have 10 positive catalysts and five negative catalysts, I'm gonna be net long. I am gonna have more of a bullish stance naturally in the portfolio. So I let the portfolio tell me what to do. Um, so, um, and sometimes this is against my natural inclination. Uh, today, I'm very bullish on UK equities. It's been a dog since 2016. I think it's the cheapest direct market in the world. Peas are really cheap. It should do, you know, 10, 20% a year for the next three years from here. Um, actually, I've got loads of shorts on because there's lots of shorts catalysts on at the moment. There's lots of shorts coming in and that kind of happens in the summer. Um, people lose focus and it just pops up. There's a weird thing where you make more money in the winter than the summer. This statistically always happens. I don't trade that inefficiency. Maybe someone else will. Um, and so today we've got lots of um, shorts popping up, which is against kind of the macro nature of, of what, you know, if I was a macro fighter. So we very diligently follow the bottom up process 
um, uh, of where we are. So, uh, so the second part of where our exposure is. So um, we're hedge funds, we get long and short, so betting on prices going up and down because in a perfect world, we'll be market neutral, we'd have 10 short catalysts and 10 long catalysts. And you know what? I'll make money as long as I process is good. Whatever everybody else does, I don't care. I'm going to make money. It's quite a nice feeling if you're in that situation. I don't care if my goes up or down. I'm going to make more money than anyone anyway. Uh, that never happens. That's that's the dream. Um, normally, there's a lot more long catalysts than there are short catalysts. At the extreme, our short catalysts are frauds. And they're just, I think there are seven frauds in the 1600 stock market today. That means there's probably about 200 great companies and a bunch of mediocre companies in the middle. We're, we're net long. I, we're more bullish today in stance. They recently reduced it a little bit um, um, because there's just more great companies and great long catalysts than there are short catalysts. So we're 136% gross, which means we have 136% in long securities, which means we have 36% leverage. I, we've borrowed some money to buy some shares. The reason why that's not completely bloody crazy is because the shares we've borrowed uh, and, and, and indeed more than the longs, we've we've borrowed a lot of short positions, which naturally move against the market. So our volatility is lower than the market. Our net exposure is uh, it's about 90 today, which is quite high. We did 12% of the month. It's coming down, the reasons I just said. Um, so we have returns higher than the stock market. We're uncollated to the stock market, which is nice. And the volatility is lower. When things go wrong, <laughs> it goes the other way. Um, but that it, well, most of the time, that's the situation we're in, which is quite nice, which is the, one of the superior things about hedge funds as well. The, the best long-term track records of all time are in hedge fund strategies. Um, did you have any specific uh, tail, tail risk hedges pre or mid COVID? Um, and do you have any now given, given the disconnect between economy and fundamentals? It's a great question. If I worked at a big house, that's the type of thing I'd spend a long time on. To give you a really rubbish answer, uh, no. Again, we just trade the catalyst and follow the process. I did not give a monkeys. We don't use index overlays. We don't do index options. We don't do futures. I just buy stocks that are wrong and there's a catalyst coming up that I can take the great money off the table. Um, so, so for the specific event of coming into coronavirus, we could not have been positioned more badly. Our largest position was an airline. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, you know, we could have been out of business. Fortunately, the process kicks in and actually you talked about earlier about, um, risk limits and I missed the question and, and, and exposure. Ultimately we cut losses and let winners run. If, if any of you guys want to, uh, girls out there want to be traders, cut your losses, let your winners run. If you don't remember anything else and do that, you will be fine. In fact, you can apply that almost to anything and you'll probably be okay in the long run. Um, and so, um, when coronavirus hit, we actually purchased more of the stuff that we shouldn't because <laughs> we thought, um, well, our catalysts are still good. The world hasn't changed. Then the politicians came out on the weekend and said exactly the same. When a politician comes out and says the world hasn't changed, the world has changed. And so um, we had a tiny short on the EasyJet and that basically saved our bacon. Our IAG started to collapse. And actually we were market neutral in the aviations, in planes, in the aviation sector. And um, EasyJet fell by a lesser amount than um, AIG in that stage. So actually, weirdly, we made back a bit of money. Uh, we still lost money over the month. Um, I think we lost 8% and the stock market fell 34%. So 
so we our bacon got got saved basically um on, on that occasion sometimes you end up cutting things you'd rather not um and then they got those but you can't you can't get them all right yeah um how much tech is involved in the in your uh investment process so i am a bit of a it idiot i didn't have a computer when i went into university and all my friends had one um and i've got a phone and i can use excel and i'm pretty good at modeling and i know how to trade and stuff but um i'm definitely probably one of the last dinosaur people and ed who's my ceo can do python trading we would not hire someone without programming skills is what i would say um you have to be proficient like using word or excel you have to be proficient at programming and technology it's it's like a paramount importance um for our firm um uh, we use technology to speed up the process. So all these catalysts and we talk about betas and things like that. Essentially, we design programs and blah, blah, blah. And we just try to make our lives easier for collecting information so that we can digest it in a qualitative fashion. We have a chat for an hour every morning at 10 and go over the screens and what's come up. We just use it as a, as a helpful tool. Um, we do not use it for trading or, you know, all the trading is done by me and it's the, the old fashioned hedge fund model um it's it's very slow very slow then you have to act like an assassin and to get it right or you're dead so um the technology is very much in the back and middle office and it's about being efficient and not making mistakes um let me give you a live example so um in the olden days when i did my fact sheets i would have to type it in manually to excel now ed presses a button and something magical happens and all the numbers just drop into the fact sheet into a template that's already branded and all i have to do is write that that you probably haven't seen our fact sheet that the, the two three paragraphs on on narrative which is the color of the market in our portfolio over the last month and it's done it takes like oh anyway, it takes ed two minutes and it takes me probably two three hours of faffing around um, what, what, and that makes it really easy for someone to check as well what do you mean by uh what well when you said the numbers drop in what kind of numbers do you mean um so this is definitely off my mouth but we have this ed does this thing where he links apis to um our portfolio and our data management system and the portfolio so um one of the numbers in the stock the, the most important number is how much money did we make last month and i can log in and it can tell me Ed presses a button and it just goes bang. You made one percent last month. Bang, the market did this. Bang, your best stock did it gave you fifty percent of this. Your worst stock did this. Um, your average market cap of your company is X. Your average P ratio is X. Your average return on capital is X. It's it's done. And if you want to change it, you change it and it's there forever. Um, and it's brilliant. And Ed used to be a head of research at an investment bank, so. He used to have to do all this stuff manually, and now he can have 20 models that just collects and dumps stuff really quickly. Um, where it becomes useful and a bit more interesting for the investment process is when you're tracking things. So rather than just tracking an RNS of a stock, you might track, we used airlines earlier, which no one likes. So um, there's lots of publicly available information that's hard to get on airlines, but not that hard. So even the governing body would publish load factors, which is basically how full are the planes for the individual carriers. So I know how full EasyJet planes are, and I can probably guess how much they're charging because they tell me on their online portal how much they charge for tickets. If I add one and two together, I know what EasyJet's revenues are going to be within about 80 degrees, 80% of certainty. 
Now, because that's quite an easy one, there are some funds out there that are clever enough called a Renaissance, um, Renaissance Capital that do this for a living and they're smarter than us. And they basically know within a couple of million quid what EasyJet's profits are going to be. And if it's a higher or lower range of estimates, and so they can trade that price. Um, we are not on that level, but we can uh, we can we use that for things. So uh, money supermarkets, we don't have any moment. We're using um, third party sources that weren't related to the stock. They were telling us the market share, basically, money supermarket, if it was going down or going up. And so we could get a feel for it. You don't know it of certainty, but there's lots of things out there um, that you can use. And the smarter the tech, the smarter the guy or girl and the more uh enterprising shall i say of collecting the data the better your edge is likely to be you know there's some funds out there that will hire 100 people to stand outside sports direct counting how many people go in and out the shop uh, there's people you mentioned warren buffett there's a website that tracks private jets of rich people and if, a, if warren buffett lands in an airport where you know uh, let's pick a company Oh, God, I don't know. Pick a company. Unilever. He flies into Unilever. Everyone knows Warren Buffett's about to buy Unilever or put a bid for it. So they buy shares because Warren Buffett's planes landed next to the Unilever and they see the unit. You can, it's, it's not a bit like stalking, but it's, it's a degree that's legal. They just follow the rich people and see where who meets who. Uh, and that's publicly available, difficult to get information. And it gives a probability of something you can trade. Um, and there's that's why computer trading and algo trading has got very popular in high frequency trading because you're you're just you're commoditizing that edge to the infinite and you just try it's like, it's like an arms war we are not going to win that arms war we just try and apply sensible it stuff to make sure it's basically test our investment pieces to make our operations more efficient it's a long answer but it's really really that's probably the biggest one of the biggest changes in the industry that is limited the time that i've been in it Okay, talking about your your own portfolio, um, which sectors are you overweight and underweight currently? Uh, so we're um, being contrarian. I'm happy to say that we are underweight or even shorting technology, and we're overweight retail because everybody hates shops and commercial property as well because everybody thinks that um, that's dead. Um, I've told you why I think that makes sense. I, I again, I just do the catalysts. If you spoke to me two years ago, I would be overweight oil and commodities and underweight consumer staples, which exactly were the opposite of what everybody would have been making money out of. In two years' time, I have no idea what would be overweight and underweight. If you forced me, I would say we'd be shorting green stocks because everybody will become tree huggers and greenwashing. Um, and we'll probably be long. Um, who's the, who will be the most hated people in two, two years' time sector-wise? I know housing, maybe housing crisis happens and they all become empty or houses become too expensive or they, the housing quality in this country is appalling and they're all going to fall down, something like that. Um, but I have genuinely no idea what will happen in two years' time and where our sector will be. Um, okay. The, te the technology boom is, you know, technology in the UK is basically rubbish compared to America and there's a few frauds in there as well. Okay. Um, and that's, that's why we can make money out of being underweight technology. Um, and retail, it's quite, you know, it's just, you can basically base shops at the moment for free and brands for free. And coming out of coronavirus, we're still buying stuff. We're still we're still the human race. We still can't help but consume like a virus. Okay, perfect. Um, and and just another uh, question that came to mind: uh, Can you describe your or explain your best trade and why? Uh, best trade is. Um, 
Pretty games workshop, really simple. Um, they were 200 million market cap. Uh, they had 200 million. I'm exaggerating the numbers a little bit. They had no debts. So they had 200 million of property that they owned. They make um, little figures for kids that don't have any friends like me when I was little. Um, and um, you paint the little figures and you play games with them. And um, they make, they, they have, they invented a Warhammer. They kind of own orcs and elves and all these sort of weird things um, in the zeitgeist. They paid for the rights to Lord of the Rings, which was a boom, was it 20 years ago, 10 years ago? I can't remember Lord of the Rings trilogy was 10 years. And so they've got a real niche following of people that are basically middle-class boys that are happy to pay 40% premium for little elves that parents buy. And it's just a profit machine. Uh, Games Workshop was a boring small cap stock because um, it's very, very uncharacteristic in terms of how it approaches the city or, or London. The management team, the reason why the stock was cheap is don't go to London. They don't like finances. Um, uh, a lot of companies today pay the wrong dividend. They use it as a market signaling tool. Um, you should just pay the dividend out, which is the cash that you don't need that you can't invest at a higher cost of capital. I, if I can invest internally at 20% compounded without paying tax, that's way better than me paying out the 2% dividend, paying tax and you buying more shares. If I can't invest at, you know, 20%, I can only invest at 2% and my cost of capital is five, Actually, I should pay out everything as a dividend. I should pay 100% dividend. And Games Workshop did that very aggressively. So sometimes they'd pay out everything. Sometimes they'd pay out nothing. And so the dividend was very volatile. So 80% of UK funds are income funds. They will only buy stable income stocks. In fact, it's one of the catalysts I look for. I buy a stock that doesn't pay a dividend, but is likely to pay a dividend next year. It announces it's going to pay a dividend. It goes up because a lot of the best fund managers want to interview them and I make a bit of money. Um, so Games Workshop, really cheap. Great base, massive profits. The return on equity was like 40%. I went to see the management time two, three times over three years and the stock did nothing for three years. And I knew it was the right thing because of the quality of the business. And it's it was a great trade because I didn't lose heart in it. It's one of those sort of long-term, short-term things. It was a great trade, but I might not get paid for eight years. And ultimately my job, um, I'm judged monthly on performance. So it's very difficult to buy something that's an eight-year trade or three-year trade when you could be fired next month. Um, so there's a lot of it that was in my personal portfolio. Um, anyway, it's gone up 30 times, which is quite nice. Um, it's now like three, four billion quid or something. Uh, and, and you've collected the dividends on the way that were like five, six percent and fallen. So that was one of stub no just follow the process it was mind-blowingly obvious but there was still an emotional part to to holding it which was why it was one of the best trades i've had things that make more money but um that was good last question which investors have you learned from and which book is your favorite or which book's your favorite top let's say top three uh, top top investors uh steve cohen um paul singer and ed thorpe um, Steve Cohen is probably one of the best traders in the world. Um, uh, Paul Singer is one of the smartest, most aggressive. Uh, let's put this in perspective. When he sued Argentina for their debts, he confiscated a warship in Gibraltar. And so he, he collects. Um, and Ed Thorpe is just his ability, if you ever read his book or, or any of his books, um, to, to jump around 
uh, he gets market efficiency better than anyone and it really brought that home to me you know he finds a gap he exploits it makes money out of it and then does it again and again so he found he, he he's the guy who published um blackjack so um 21 how to do card counting so you can go actually you can win at blackjack if you can count the cards so he got he made loads of money at casinos and then got kicked out of casinos published the book thousand people thought they could card count went into casinos 99 percent of them couldn't and so the, actually blackjack became one of the most popular casino things in the world he then moved on to roulette and created the first handhold computer where he recorded the speed of the ball and clicked and he could work out the slowdown and the probability of which quarter the ball would end in giving him an edge he then moved from gambling to the stock market and found actually there was even more inefficiencies and the house has less of an edge and yeah, the most famous thing that he came up with was um, he invented the options pricing formula seven years before Black Skulls and used it for seven years to make $400 million for himself. If you know something, don't tell people about it. Make money out of it. Um, so he and he's now at uh, 60 or 70. He's written a book recently and listed all his sort of accolades and his, you know, and he can really get across that when there's a, a gap in the market, how you can you can trade it. And when it stops working, he moves on. Um, so yeah, those those three guys, um, awesome for different reasons. Um, books, market hedge fund market wizards, um, how to link your personality to your trading style and finding your own way to invest. Don't copy someone else, just find your own way. And then you'll find someone that re reflects your way and then you can go talk to them and you'll be amazed how actually there's not many investors out there actually in reality and they're actually all quite happy to chat generally because it's what they love to do um seth coleman's um margin of safety um it it's one of the best ways of uh for me and i use it for when we're training people uh, well i don't train people anymore but um for getting across the difference between value price and all this math stuff like it's just very simple this is what it's worth pay less for it and it puts in it connects it it's a 20 it's not written in 94 but it um it really helps cement i think for a lot of people how to value something whether it be your house car it doesn't have to be stock stuff um that's an awesome book um and then the third one is uh remnants remnants of a stock operator um jesse livermore which is actually a, a folk tale um, but in it, there's lots of wisdom. And you've mentioned earlier, you know, what's your trading rules and risk, you know, cut your losses, let your winners run, let the tape tell you what to do. There's lots of deep meanings in that book, whether it was meant or meant to or not, that that your any experienced investor or trader will just nod and smile wisely to. And it's quite an easy read. It's a short book. Um, bit of a fun one. All three of those, I think you can get an audiobook as well if you just want to make it easier. Um so I I do, I do a lot of books now, just on, in, I live in Cornwall, so it's a long trip to London, so I do audio books quite easy. Um, yeah, those three are really, um, I, I wouldn't work with anyone who hasn't read those three books.